This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. Der Fußball ist zurück in der zweiten Liga. Rechte Neckfahne mit dem linken Fuß. Bringt den Ball auf den zweiten Pfosten. Tische! Tor! 1-0 für den VfL Bochum! Da draußen ist der Ball frei! Und jetzt ist er drin! Jetzt ist er drin! Und die Spotzen macht das Tor! We welcome you to a special edition of the Spider Bundesliga podcast. No previews, no reviews, but something completely different. On this week's episode, we have a special invitation for you. This time, we're going to be chatting with one of the big names in German football. And if this goes well, we might continue to do this once a month. Joining me today is DW freelance writer and author of the book Mensch Behind the Cones. It's the one and only Jonathan Harding. Jonathan, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you, Matthew. Thanks for having me on the show. Lovely intro. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on someone of your stature and esteem in the world of German football. Um, you know, we might as well get on with the show. Um, I guess the, the first real question is, how, how did you get into German football? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I think a lot of what's come in my career is I've been very lucky. I think luck plays a big role in, in how things turn out for you. But I've always had a strong connection to, to Germany and to German-speaking countries. I spent some time growing up in Germany and in Austria as a kid, so... I've always had that connection to the language and I carried that through to my studies and, you know, ending up studying German at university level. So history, film, literature, language, linguistics, um, something that not many people do, if I'm honest, these days to, to study. There were only, I think, eight or nine other people who were on my course at uh, university. I think it's you have to really want to do it and you have to have a strong connection with a language to want to learn so much about a country. And I think it was just obvious to me that I had a special relationship with the German language and, and the country itself. And straight after my degree, I, I got a job, I got an internship uh, down in Munich, and, and since then I've been working my way uh, way through through the the world of journalism. But I think the turning point really was when Germany won the World Cup in 2014. And as I, I've said this to a number of people, but I think if that doesn't happen, then I uh, don't have a lot of the breaks that I have had since then and certainly wouldn't have been able to write the book that I've written because the interest in German football in the modern era at least wouldn't have been as great as it was or as it is now as a result of them winning in Brazil. It is quite interesting how in many respects the sort of the attention of German football has you know, magnified in some way with that that 2014 triumph. Um, I guess when you, you spoke about you know how you you'd grown up in some of the German speaking countries and and stuff like that. So, do, do you think that it made it certainly a seamless transition for you when you decided to to take that internship in in Munich? I mean, you have to want to do it. I think the other thing is you know move, removing yourself from what many considered maybe sort of more comfortable surroundings, you know, language that you know instinctively uh, and intrinsically, uh, a custom or a culture that you're more familiar with. It takes, it takes a certain type of person to be able to want to make that move. And I think I would encourage every type of person to make that move, even if it's something that sounds a little bit scary to begin with, because in many ways it can be, one of the best ways to to learn about the world and to to broaden your mind and your horizons and i certainly feel that the the language connection has been an absolute game changer Um, being able to access a world that to me was closed beforehand and i think when you think about it in a very simplified way every country that speaks a different language to the one that you speak fluently is a world in its own right and once you speak that language to a certain degree whether that's almost mother tongue level or, you know, just being able to order dinner at the restaurant, some part of that world is then unlocked to you and you are able to expose yourself 
to another type of culture, to another type of person. Um, so I think if you're the kind of person who raises that kind of challenge, then then definitely I would say do it. For me, it wasn't seamless. It was it was hard. Uh, I was lucky that because I was able to live in a lot of countries when I was younger, it felt a little bit easier, more natural to do it. But it was still hard because the job was tough, the hours were tough, um, and Munich is is not an easy city to uh, to start your career in uh, for many reasons. Another sort of universal language that we both speak quite fluently is the language of football. Um, you yourself played, um, we'll call it a, a good level, um, and you talk about it in your book, oh, well, better than most. Uh, you um, played football for, for Bonner SSI. Um, tell us about that experience of, of playing, you know, obviously Bonner is not a particularly big football club by any means in the German landscape but but talk about your experiences of, of, of playing for them playing football at any level is always a lot of in a lot of fun um, but I think when you decide to join a club and I think that's one thing that Germany has done really well the, the setup of clubs you, know, you, know, you don't really play for your school here um, you don't really play for your college or university it's definitely a case of joining the the club in the town that you grew up in or, you know, that you live in. And yeah, to do that was a, was a great experience. I, I had some time in my year abroad playing for, for VfR Grünstadt when I uh, was on my year abroad as a teaching assistant, an English language teaching assistant. So I had some exposure to, to life in, you know, German football club culture at the, the lower amateur semi-pro level. And, it was it's such a different experience uh, to something I'd ever ever done before. I'd played for a club in England, but it was it was not as organised. There wasn't the same sort of family feel. The first team and the second team weren't really connected. And yeah, in Germany, it was totally the opposite. You know, I played in the second team for Bonn when I first started. The manager was new as well, and uh, it's ended up forming such a strong friendship with him that obviously that first chapter is about him in Mensch. And going through that that whole experience with him was very interesting because we were both starting out at the club. We were both new. You know, going through the trial period where there's, you know, 30 guys that turn up to the first training session. I think uh, one thing that I think regardless of the level that you play at, whether it's for Manchester City on a Saturday in the Premier League or whether it's for Bond's reserve team on a Sunday afternoon in a small rural German town in the middle of nowhere with three people and a dog watching, you know, whatever the level is, there is a certain, there's the same feeling of wanting to commit, wanting to put in a good performance and that drive to improve as an individual. You know, I was in the best physical shape that I've ever been in my life. And I knew that I wasn't the best player technically, but that I had a certain level of commitment and I was determined to be the fittest and, and most involved player on, on the field. And, you know, I could see that other players in the team had other skills that I didn't. So I just tried to find the best way to, to be a part of that team and to help and to form a good partnership with my with my other defenders. And I, the thing that got me the most was that sense of of working hard every training session, you know, training Tuesday, Thursday nights, even when it was raining. And then, you know, Sasha, my coach, being able to teach me how to improve my game and then seeing that improvement. I think, as I say, regardless of the level, if you can see yourself get better and then see it happen in a game situation, that can be so magical. It can be brilliant. You know, in that moment, you do feel like you know, it's the World Cup final. And, and there's something to be said about that. Uh, unfortunately, due to increased work commitments and a perhaps rather, uh, <laughs> what's the word, David Beckham-style metatarsal foot injury oh. um i wasn't able to continue my my playing days to the same level but i do have very fond memories of it oh that's that's good to, do you do you still keep <clears throat> continue to play football uh does does dw have a football team that you can kind of it does and... yeah i play I, I play for dw's football team on a monday nights in a in a media league um or in a, a, le a company league um it still allows me to play 90 minutes, and uh, I think it's not obviously not the same. But you know, this it's still a lot of fun to play uh, to play 90 minutes. But the, it's very true that when you stop training, 
uh, twice a week that you do notice the difference between your, uh, not your physical capabilities, but your mentality towards it. You know, turning up on a Monday night to see the guys and play 90 minutes and then have a beer afterwards is very different to joining a club and training twice a week and then hoping to make the final 15 for a Sunday and then being in the starting 11 or being on the bench. Uh, and there's a, yeah, there's a big difference between that. But no, I still, still kick the ball around a bit. Oh, I love it. Love to hear it. Uh, let's talk about your book, Mensch Beyond the Cones. Fantastic book. First of all, <clears throat> absolutely loved reading it. Um, and I Thank would you. highly recommend any German football fan, if you haven't bought it, do it. Um, you can buy it from Oakley Books, um, and it's worth every penny of that. There are a few things I've taken away, and we're, now we're not obviously going to spoil the book because we want you to go and buy it, um, <laughs> obviously. Um, your your conversation with Frank Vormut, which is the second chapter, Um really interesting on the landscape of German football and uh, but also on a personal level you know you know the the key takeaway we don't learn from tests but for for life um talk about mm. in many regards without giving too much away your what your your sort of motivation was to to, to chat with Frank now that he's obviously coaching in, in the Netherlands um and what what did you learn from from actually kind of you know getting involved with you know almost his side of 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 his life i think learning i mean it was easy to learn so much from frank uh, i you know sitting down with him i felt like he was a friend and it was really very reassuring you know we ended up chatting for something like 2 or 3 hours and and it was really just a fantastic experience to see another side of of coaching obviously as a as a reporter, you often see only the side of coaches in mix zones or press conferences or on the sideline uh, or in interviews, the side that coaches want to present to you. But, you know, here I was speaking to someone who had spent time coaching those individuals. So he had an element of, of a more personal perspective to shed uh, some light on. And I, I really enjoyed the process of going through the coaching course and what he does to coach Fußballera, you know, top level coaches in Germany. And to hear him talk about how thorough the course was. Uh, I really, obviously there was a lot of criticism in Germany about whether there was too much focus on tactics and how sometimes perhaps Germany has produced players that are capable of playing too many systems but not capable of one-on-one -on -one skills. I think that is, was an issue that's been addressed in, in the last few months. But on the whole, I, I felt very encouraged by the the comprehensive approach of the Fußballer and how every aspect was considered. You know that that coaches were practicing club interview scenarios. They were going through how to speak to clubs. That that coaches were practicing how to take over a team in February and how many and needing twelve points from you know five games. And you know, that that sort of strategic planning does reflect a move in modern coaching to more game situational coaching and training for players so let's not have static drills i'll pass you the ball you pass me the ball let's recreate game situations and then affect the environment to challenge the players well what you're doing here actually with coaches is you're doing the same thing let's recreate a situation that is possible for them and then change the environment and see how they handle it so that they can get experience in that regard. And I think that was what really, really impressed me because you're not just giving them the, the technical, tactical foundation of knowledge, but you're also preparing them for situations uh, that they will encounter, whether that be on an interview basis or a personal basis or a team basis. I think that's what impressed me uh, so much. And I mean, there's so many things I could say about the conversation with Frank, but he was one of the most interesting people I've ever met, that's for sure. Yeah, it, it was, it's one of my favorite chapters in the book. And, and you know, it was hard. I found it almost really easy to, to get almost caught up in the, in the whole football era um, sort of conversation. Mm. And, 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 you know, you, you love how that's set up in, in such a way that, you know, in, in other countries, that's not the case. It's just they 
like you look at say in in Italy where you know you look at AC Milan and and that sort of situation and then they've, they've just already picked the coach out from somewhere and he's not you know whether he's the right person for that job who knows but you can see in the German game especially in the teachings um, they've gone to an effort to make sure almost that the coach is almost aware of the fact that if if they are right for the job rather than just taking that job do, do you think that's a that's a good thing yeah I mean absolutely I think more needs to be taken into consideration in that regard I don't think Germany's quite perfected it yet but I would say that I think they've gone about it in most cases I think particularly with second or third division teams that might be more the case because I think there's more patience there to apply some some greater values to the assessment of an incoming coach whereas I think in the Bundesliga there's often a lot of pressure to either stay up or make Europe or to achieve some goal in the short term that affects long-term planning but I think given that as you say in the teaching side of things coaches are prepared for how to recognize the importance of the club's philosophy the club's standing and the community in which that club is and I think if that's a consideration in the coaching course then I think that's also something that clubs are looking for in reality and I, I can't stress enough that I think it's important that the coach is aware on a more than superficial level of the importance of the club in the community and the, 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 the values and the visions of the club at the highest level. Because if those things are not reflecting your own, then you shouldn't take the job. Of course, it's easy for someone like me standing on the outside to say, don't take this job because it doesn't match what you think. Because time outside of employment is tough for coaches, of course. But you have a much greater chance of success if the values that you have are reflected in the club that you're applying for and that the people at the club are going to support the ideas that you have going forward. I think if you don't have those two things aligned, then it's going to be very difficult for you. And I, I do think on the whole, Germany does a better job of that than in other countries, yes. I think a good indicator of what you've just said would be Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool, someone who has come in, absolutely identifies with the club, understands the club on a personal level, you know, is clearly engaged in the community of things, you know, easily the mo one of the most likable people in football by a long way. Um, you know, he just has this, this sort of aura about him that people just gravitate to him, even if, you know, you're not a fan of a certain aspect of him, you still kind of, kind of just find yourself following him uh, as a person. I think that's, I think that's really important as well. You look at, you know, some, you look, I think it's less so in Germany. You'd probably say more so in the English game where there are a lot of managers that are at teams that quite clearly do not identify with that, the club at all. And they're just almost another manager in another position. And, you know, if they achieve what they can achieve or they don't, it doesn't really matter. I think that's sort of one, you know, one thing, one thing I should have probably touched on first before going into that conversation uh the inspiration behind the book what what motivated you to to make to to to, to write this book well having read living on the volcano by michael calvin which i think is a phenomenal piece of work was was really about coaching in england and about coaches experiences again from sort of the top level all the way down and I, that sort of left a bit of a mark on me and i thought well that's really a brilliant way to tell those stories and obviously michael calvin is probably the best in the world at telling those those human stories and I thought it's strange Germany is considered the blueprint of of how to coach or how to approach football in so many ways and yet nobody's really written about the people who are in charge of all of these players and you know again coming back to what we we're saying earlier without the success in 2014 I think that the interest or the the perspective of Germany being the blueprint country might not be there in the way that it it was after the win in Brazil. So, I, you know, that was kind of the inspiration. And I just thought, well, I know a lot of, I, I've got a lot of ideas. Let's bring this together. There's a lot of literature out there about players and there's a lot of literature out there about Klopp. So let's see if we can do something about all the other coaches in Germany that are relevant. And uh, yeah, I was fortunate enough along the way, the three-year process of, of being able to speak to uh, some wonderful people who gave up their time and, and wanted to tell a little bit of their story. And 
I was fortunate enough to be in a position to put those together. Yeah, I mean, it, it's the whole process, just reading it and, and, and getting caught, kind of lost in it. And that's something that I found really easy was to, to get lost in reading the work. Because um, it is an excellent book. One thing that you've got in each chapter, I think this is probably the only thing I'll give away, the key lessons. <laughs> the, the key yeah. lessons. Why? First of all, why? Um because I love it, and I'll th- I'll tell you what I think about it afterwards. But but what was the what was the reasoning behind having at the end of each chapter a key lesson? Well, I I think sometimes in each chapter or in books generally, you can come to the end of a chapter and be sort of overwhelmed a bit by all the information that you've got. And I wanted each chapter at the beginning of each chapter, each one has an attribute that is associated with the person in question in that chapter, but also is an attribute that I think is probably necessary to be a successful coach in the modern era. And I wanted to circle back around to the idea that the person in question was really focusing on throughout their story. Because I think there are so many different aspects that you can get caught up in and that you can be involved in when you're reading. And I think that's the beauty of reading. You know, your mind will take you down one road and then you'll come back a different way. But I wanted to make sure that at the end of each chapter that there was room to review and say, okay, so this chapter's really been about this. And, you know, that's something that, you know, I want to make sure that we remember going forward. Because, you know, as I say, there's just so much to, to talk about and to say in different chapters that ultimately I didn't want that to be, uh, to be forgotten amongst all of the information. No, I love it. I, I love the fact that, you know, once you, you read, you know, 20 or 30 pages and you, you know, <clears throat> as you said, you can get overwhelmed. I think, you know, getting back to sort of the key message of what each chapter is about. And, 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 and I love the fact that in this book, some of the ideas that I didn't really think about were challenged. And to have that sort of perspective was, was really cool in this book. And that's something that... <laughs> It's, it, this might sound weird, but it's something I almost appreciate about the reading part of, or the, the aspect of the book is that, you know, those things that you sort of almost second, you know, in a, are a back thought uh, are brought to the forefront and then they immediate, you're immediately challenged in that. And I really, certainly something I appreciate and I think other people would too, do as well. One last thing before we go to a break. Christian Strike. We have to talk about mm. him. Dude is... <laughs> well renowned he's the longest tenured head coach in the Bundesliga at the moment uh, you know it, I think I, I saw something that said that he could be bottom of the Bundesliga and he'd be the, one of the only coaches that would be under no pressure whatsoever uh, talk about first of all your interaction with him and and what it was like to, to, to be able to score to be able to have him in your book well, the interesting thing about Christian Streich is that he, he is such a, a fascinating character because he really does fit the idea of what we're talking about, about a club that matches a philosophy um, and, and sees that philosophy and makes make sure that the incoming coach, it also matches that philosophy. And then the community in which the club is in is also reflected in that. It's sort of like a, uh, a trifecta of things that are uh, mutually enhancing each other at the same time and uh, yeah he's a very special character um yeah the funny thing is you know that chapter is really about him from an abstract perspective because almost all of the quotes and the things that he's spoken about there have all been in press conferences over the years and you know he's not an easy person to to speak to and i you know sadly i wasn't able to sit down with him because Freiburg, uh, understandably, uh, are a small club and um, have a lot of requests for the man. And at the time, you know, when you're one man coming along with this grand idea of a book, it's uh, it's not you're not necessarily the first name to be on the list. And um, I had no problem with the way that that Freiburg communicated that with me. Uh, they were very open and honest, and I appreciated how. They were about the situation and they said, look, I'm really sorry, it's not possible. He's, he's basically booked up 
you know, interview wise. I think he does two interviews a year or one interview a year. And uh, I can totally understand that. I kind of get on board with it, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, of course, part of me sort of thought, oh, how brilliant would it have been to just to be able to sit down with him. But when I was writing the book, I thought I can't not acknowledge him in any way. And when I started to write about him and make notes on the press conferences and the things that he said and read around, I sort of thought, well, I'm going to have to write a chapter about him anyway, because he's just too iconic not to. You know, this is a guy who coached over 200 games at youth level in Freiburg. He knows the city. He cycles to work. You know, Freiburg's the home of the Green Party, basically, in Germany. And you've got so many things that are reinforcing one another. It's a very special, tight-knit community. And he embodies that. And he gives strength to the, you know, the, the small club mentality because they continually, despite losing their best players, continually and consistently find ways to win and to get the best out of players that might not succeed elsewhere. See Luca Waldschmidt, for example, who recently just made his Germany debut. So I had to write about him. And, uh, of course, you know, writing about him from, from the distance is always different, but when you spend time researching him and, you know, really getting into him as a person and sort of deep diving into him, it's, uh, it's fascinating, fascinating to read about him, fascinating to read about someone as a person and as a coach who I think is very, very rare, not just in modern football, but in society these days, you know, he's very outspoken on social issues. He educates his players in ways that don't just consist of, how to defend a corner or the best way to approach a 4-4-2 formation. And I have a lot of respect for that, uh, for sure. So, yeah, it was a privilege just to be able to write about him the way that I did. And, you know, obviously, any, and I would recommend, you know, any, anybody who wants to read more about him, um, you know, it's, it's hard to find stuff in English on him, obviously, because it's not, you know, not necessarily a subject that reaches international borders, uh, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, although it should, you know, to be honest. But um, I know that Raphael Hernigstein wrote a, a really good piece in The Athletic recently about him, and I know that that's in English. And there is a good book about him by Christoph Ruth. I think it's called Bundesliga Anders, um, about him and his era at Freiburg, but that is obviously in German. So, if again, if you haven't, uh, if you want to learn a language, there's a reason to do it because it will enable you to read about Christian Streich. <laughs> <laughs> we can all get on board with that. It certainly will be a sad time when he eventually does call uh, the coaching caper at Freiburg um, up. It will be a shame. He's certainly one of the more interesting characters going around in, in world football. We will take a one and only break. And on the other side, we've got some more things to talk about from player well-being. And of course, your fan questions. The Big Heads Media Podcast Network has a variety of podcasts such as this one to check out. One that I highly recommend is the Voice from the Underground podcast, where politics and pop culture collides. The crew discusses a variety of social issues from race, religion, politics, and pretty much everything in between. You can check out the Voice from the Underground podcast. Like many others, head to bigheadsmedia.com. Now back to the podcast. The second part of this podcast is... A little bit different. We're going to go off the pitch and into the mental side of the game. Something that has become certainly more relevant in in the in the modern age is player well-being, mental health in particular, uh, as more players are coming out and acknowledging the fact that they may have mental health problems. Um, Jonathan, this is something that we kind of bounced off each other as an idea, and it's something that we both are quite passionate about talking about. Um, mm. Yeah. Youth level in particular is something that's interesting because we, I almost get the the feeling that some of it will, some of the mental health problems per se will start from youth level. Do you think that um, they they kind of aren't adaptable in terms of the teachings? They're more or less talking the football side of things, and then you know if they don't make it, it kind of sets them up in in the wrong way. Well, I think too often, you know, almost regardless of the sport, you know, sport needs to take a, a serious look at itself because what you're essentially selling is a dream that 95% of people will never realize because statistically with the thousands or millions of young boys and girls out there who want to be professional athletes, whether that's football, basketball, American football, baseball, you know, it's in the major sports, um, rugby, cricket, it's... It's, it's impossible for everybody to make it. 
So what the question I want to know is what are we doing for the for the 99 percent? Because so often all we ever hear about is the one percent that makes it. Well, why are we talking about the one percent so much? I mean, ultimately, we should be talking about everybody. But I do have concerns about whether enough is being done. Again, you know, from everything I've seen, just this isn't just a German problem. I mean, this this feels like a, a world, a global issue, really, because I think if lots of young kids at the age of 10, 11, 12, 13, you know, start to be sold this idea, if all, if even if it's subconsciously through the almost professionalization of youth football, then you start to move away from what we all played the game for at that level, and that was for fun and to be with our friends and to be outside and to be active and to play a sport and to learn how to work together in a team and to develop our, our character skills and traits in an indirect way. And I think at the moment, my fear is that too much focus is being put on how to best play a 4-4-2 or how to play out the back or here are some, here are some exercises we can do to improve first touch. I think there's definitely a need to create a model in which, yes, those things are still present and not neglected, but at the same time, let's make sure that we're looking after the human beings in question. Because if we don't, then we're sending a very dangerous message, I think, which is that you are only really of value to us if, you, if your body and your mind can perform these exercises, movements, uh, to the benefit of, of the team. And ultimately, I think that football clubs or sports organizations or sports clubs have a responsibility to develop the human being. And that's where my concern arises from because, you know, you talk about mental health, uh, you know, awareness. If we go back to the beginning and we start to give these young girls and boys the best platform then we don't need to put a bandage on a, on a wound later because we have prevented the wound arriving or we have done a much better job of reducing the possibility of that wound arriving earlier on. It's about going back to the source rather than just trying to bandage up something that happens later on. Yeah, totally agree. Actually, I, as you were speaking, it reminded me of, of a situation that's quite close to home for me because um, my brother, who's, who's a twin, we both at at school level played footy, and Australian rules footy, that is. Um, and he, from a young age, always wanted to play in the AFL. Always been his dream. You know, He always felt mm. he could do it. And this is kind of where we kind of got off on the tangent. I played it for the, uh, the love of the game. Loved footy, loved hanging out with the boys uh, every Saturday morning or, or, or midday sort of thing. Go have a kick. You know, obviously you want to win, but in the same time, you know, at the end of the game, have a bit of a, a laugh and all that. Whereas my brother heavily invested on this dream to go in. Uh, he played academy, well, what I guess you'd call it academy football. They call it a development squad um, for, North right. Adla for North Adelaide. Yeah, interesting though. Development. But development only in the sense of, the of their sporting ability. That's right. right. That is correct. He got to under eighteen level, um, and it became pretty clear, not to him though, but to everyone around the club, that he, on a football level, was never going to cut it. But unfortunately, my brother didn't really catch that until he was cut, um, coming out of high school. And then it became a bit of a tough thing where he... Well, it's a tough time. Yeah. You know, you're in high school. You're going through a lot of transition yeah. in your life, generally, physically, emotionally. And if you haven't been prepared, you know, outside of your own family and friends, because, you know, that's obviously something you've got to take into consideration, that makes life a lot harder. I can imagine that was tough for you, brother. Yeah, it was. And, like, like I kind of... It was the thing, like, I tried to make him aware of the fact that you got to look the bigger picture i mean if it doesn't work out what, what's the what's the next sort of step so he he joined another team uh central districts which um he he played he never got to actually properly play with them because he, he sustained an injury and 
in training and they basically told him that you have to play a four years footy elsewhere which was almost the the, the not so nice way to say we're cutting you as well uh, and since then he's bounced mm. around from team to team uh in the in the amateur league to try and you know play but it i think he's almost had this sudden realization that it's not going to happen and i almost think that it's almost the that's been the thing that he's needed is that sort of reopening of okay it's not going to happen now i need to rediscover that passion of the game that all the people around me have um and you know it was obviously tough for him but at the same time the clubs didn't help him because they didn't help him become the best version of himself in terms of a, a personal level they were only teaching mm. they were only teaching him all the tactical or the football side of thing and and it you know he's quite reserved in the way but you could tell that it you know he he went through a period where he stopped playing footy altogether because he completely fell fell out of love with it um which was tough for him it was it was yeah and I, I think that's ex- that's exactly it isn't it because you know you're talking there about you know it's not always possible to 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 make the, or to to make the best out of some somebody in that situation because a lot of it re- relies on you as the individual but as i say there is a responsibility of the sports club in question to at least equip the individual with the skills that they will need in life not just the skills that they will need to to succeed on the pitch. And I'm sure that their argument would be, or their counter-argument would be, well, by learning and playing this sport, they will be able to learn lots of life skills. That's great, and I think that is applicable in some senses, but in all honesty, if you already know that the, the child in question isn't going to make it to the pro level, but they still have the desire to play because they still love the sport, then there's a certain level of responsibility there where you can't just cut them aside. You know, you at this age, you, you need to nurture them. You need to make sure that that they are given the opportunity to develop their character. Because otherwise, yeah, they, they you know, you get to 15, 16, 17, 18, and you feel like someone has rejected you, and that can stay with you for a really, really long time because you know, I'm sure that it's the dream of a lot of young children to want to become professional athletes and you know be pro pro sporting heroes. You know, and if you are not able to recognise that maybe this isn't going to work out, but that's okay because I feel strongly about this, this, and this, and I'm equipped with these skills, then you know we're setting people up to already think less of themselves, mm. and that's never something that we want to do. No. And I know something that he he kind of had trouble with um, because he felt he was one of the better, whereas comparison to me, didn't really matter what people thought of me in terms of a football sense as long as people thought I was a good guy. That was all I cared. You know, I was like, yeah, that's that would be... Um, a, that's that, that shows the difference in approach myself and my brother have. Um but he had always a hard time if he wasn't playing in sort of the the best team he would kind of take it as sort of like an indictment on him rather than you know maybe it's because of your abilities as a footballer so he'd always take it kind of a bit too personally um <clears throat> in that regard um but you know now i think thankfully now he's he's enjoying his footy he's at a club which you know resonates with both of us um, being that it's an old collegiate club to the, the the school that we went to, um, so that's you know that's a good thing for him is that he's finally gone to a club which kind of accepts him for him. You know he obviously good. he wants to play at the best level, the the top level. But um, I don't think uh, at times I th- he he kind of gets a little bit off camber. He thinks you know he still thinks he can play at that top level, but that's that's a lot deeper and probably not something we will go into that's uh that's for another time most definitely um social media is is another one of those hurdles that for better or for worse can have an effect on on people i know you know we both of us we have we have our social media accounts and 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 a lot of the listeners do as well um criticisms and 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 people coming at you it it, it does 
bring out the worst in some people. It can, yes. Um, as I say, you know, I think it's a question of society as well. I think, uh, you know, it's weird how social media has affected social norms, um, social situations in the way that we interact or often don't interact with one another now because often our preferred method of communication is done in a virtual space where it's easier to not have to deal with confronting another human being. And I think there are some positives to social media in that sense that's for people who are maybe a little bit more reserved and uh, socially anxious, that can be a very positive way to meet someone and to um, build up your confidence in how to communicate with another individual. Uh, on the other hand, there are obviously other people who can use it in a way that allows them to be someone that they're not and can use it maliciously, um, can, can use it in a negative way. Uh, you know, putting, putting it from a sporting perspective, I think, again, this ties into, you know, something that needs to be done in terms of, of education and development alongside the sporting aspects. You know, there needs to be consideration for your own image. You know, at what age are young um, boys and girls becoming aware that they have an image if they're professional athletes and how do they reflect that image online and what does that mean you know obviously it's a well-discussed topic but it is quite telling that on social media generally we rarely ever see anything negative so the depiction of your life is almost always and when I say negative I mean you don't post a picture of the day where you drop the shopping on the way back from the shop you you know twist your ankle you fall off your bike you're late for work and you, you know, you break your phone and your dog dies. You know, you don't post that day because that's not a day that you want other people to know about. And yet, when you have a great day, obviously, for some people, there's an inclination to want to let other people know about that great day. And, you know, if we only spend a lot of our time in these worlds, then, of course, our perception is going to be affected by the fact that what we consistently see is positive news and the world being great and this is my life or, or this, is, this person must be living an amazing life because they're always posting photos or videos from this place or, you know, and they always look in great health. Or, and, and I think that can have a damaging effect. Um, on, on the way that we view one another and the way we interact with one another. And I think athletes have a responsibility to consider how genuine their reflection is um, and also how honest uh, they are in, in running their social media because, you know, are they doing it or is, you know, their management team doing it? And is that then a fair portrayal of them or is it a question of you finishing a game and saying, post something positive hashtag focus, hashtag happy, you know, that's then not an honest portrayal. And, and I understand that individuals at the absolute top level have a lot of things, you know, a lot of people and, and things that, you know, put pressure on their time. But if I think you are going to choose to use these platforms in a way to, to communicate with your fans in the outer world, then I think you have to do it in a genuine way. So there's lots of things to consider, how it affects us when we interact with one another how it affects the perception of other people's lives and our own perception of our own life. But as uh, you know, that, that both of those things are true for athletes as well. But especially for athletes, I think there's an even extra level of responsibility because you have more power. You have far more power than you know, an, an, a non-athlete because of the large, in most cases, following that you have. And so you have to understand the, the impact that you can make in on the world and again you know there are questions about whether that's necessarily being done in the best way or whether you know a management team has come in and said well you know if we get your followers up to a hundred thousand that will open up this and this opportunity well is that the best way to approach the situation so yeah social media is a is a spider's web of, of complexity and uh, you know i'm not even sure i've done a great job of explaining the way that I think about it there because it's so complicated. But 
in any case, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely something that needs to be considered. Like an onion, there's many, many layers to social media, for better <laughs> or for worse. Um, we'll go on to our fan questions. We have two of them. Um, so we thank you for those who have, who have brought those in. The first one is from Abel Mejros at Bundespl. Also, congratulations, Abel, if you are listening uh, on your first child. Congratulations to you and your yes. wife. Yeah, yeah, congratulations, absolutely. Well done, son. Um, he asks, and I think this is a question a lot of people will probably continuously ask in the coming years, when is the strike book coming out? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, I guess the easier answer or the simple answer would be when I sit down with him. <laughs> um, no, I I don't know. At the moment, I'm, I'm really happy with Mensch and, uh, you know, it's obviously not that long ago that I wrote it and published it and had it out there and, and got it out into the world. So, you know, one one thing at a time. But, uh, you know, as I say, there's, there's some good literature out there already on him. It's just not in English. And I think that's that's worth reading if, if you're able to. I'll, I'll, if you do eventually come around to it, I will certainly get my pre-order in. So And so will so many. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it, yeah. Awesome character. He 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 would probably have a whole uh, series on himself. Uh, that's that's the the kind of person he is, and you know, one that will eventually will get in English eventually. Um, the last question is from Steel Penguin at Steel Penguin Three. It says hello everybody for Jonathan. What are your favourite football clubs, national teams? And then the second question is is about the Spider Bundesliga. It says, do you think Hanover? Uh, can make a run to the top of the table. We'll start with the first question. Love the questions. Um, my favourite team is Brighton and Hove Albion. I was born near there, and so I have a, a an association with the club. I've, uh, I haven't supported them all my life. That would be a, a lie. But I think from my early teenage years, uh, I remember going down to watch us play, I think it was Reading in League One, um, and all the championship and uh yeah we lost one nil and uh it was raining and we were terrible but i think that was it and um you know you when you go down and you have that moment of association with the club that was when we were with dean as well with the athletics track and the golf stands and it was it's just something horrendously special about it so been a fan of uh, brighton ever since i have sympathies for kaiserslautern uh, having spent my year abroad uh, near there and having to, gone to see quite a few games that was the last year they were in the Bundesliga when they finished seventh well actually yeah the, the year after that they got relegated I think but yeah that was when they were still hitting the heights and I saw them beat Schalke 5-0 Manuel Neuer was in goal some incredible games over the years um, but uh, yeah that was that was that was quite a special year so I have a soft spot for them although obviously I think they've been poorly run and uh, yeah I mean i I watch a lot of uh, the national teams in terms of uh, England in football and rugby and cricket, obviously. Um, international football, I often get the question, do you support Germany or England? I think it's a, it's a tough one, obviously. As a fan, I'm always going to be an England fan. But uh, you know, I obviously have a, a huge emotional interest in Germany, having spent or every year of my career you know, watching and studying and, and looking at their development. So... You know, my heart is in two places. Yeah, understandable. And uh, we'll get on to the second question with Hanover. Uh, Hanover have had a relatively tricky start to the Spider Bundesliga this season under Mirko Slomka, who to many was a bit of a surprise appointment, trying to get back the glory. Is they currently sit in eleventh place um, after their two 0 win over Dynamo Dresden? Um, not sure how much you've seen of. Uh, the team from Lower Saxony, but um, what's been your impression on them and do you think they can make a run at promotion again? Well, I have to say I haven't seen any sides of Bundesliga this year, at least not that much in terms of full games. I've seen the odd highlight now and again, but um, I never thought the Mirko Slumka was a good appointment. I think it's a lazy appointment. I think it's an appointment that harks back to uh, a forgotten era when they were in the Europa League. And I don't think he's the same manager. And more importantly, I don't think they're the same club anymore. Uh, I think they needed to be smarter. And yeah, I, um, I don't think it's a, it's a great appointment. Um, 
if he goes, then I think Hanover have the opportunity, perhaps with a new manager and uh, some changes in personnel, to to move higher up the table because I think so often in the Zweite Bundesliga, it's always the teams that get relegated from the Bundesliga that are able to sort of bounce back quickly. But I don't think anybody's getting past Hamburg and Stuttgart this year, which means really that third spot is up for grabs between about four or five clubs because it so often is. And then there are so many teams that tail away at the end. Um, so having said that if Slomka goes, they could probably make a charge at the table. I still think that's true, but I don't think they'll go up, no. Tend to agree. Um, in, in our preview, we kind of said the same notes that it was a bit of a weird appointment, and you know, someone who hadn't been in the game for about a year and a half lasted eleven games at Karlsruhe uh, back in the sixteen seventeen season. So it's been even longer than a year and a half. So you know, it, it didn't make sense then. It still doesn't make much sense now. But I mean, all could probably change if they were to get promoted. But um, you know, it, it, their, their signings also kind of uh, just a mix of names and 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 it was weird. The, the whole dynamic there is a bit strange. And obviously the Martin Kinn stuff as well, which for some reason never goes away. Um, mm. So yeah, they they need culturally as well. They they need a bit of a a change. Um, obviously, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Kind leaving would probably be the first one, but you know that's seeming to be a lot harder than you know supporters would like um but yeah i <laughs> you know that's as german for, sometimes that's the way it is so um we'll see how yeah. we go. before you go jonathan is there anything you'd like to plug any pieces you've done recently for dw or for anyone else that you'd like to give a shout out for oh um not really uh that's very kind of you to ask um i wrote a piece a few weeks back i think it was even probably a month now uh on the bundesliga for um for ESPN, um, and I think if you haven't watched the Bundesliga or you think it's a not very competitive league, then I would hope that that article might be a compelling case to convince you otherwise. I think that's all I would say on that. But other than that, no, not not anything pressing at the moment. No, nope, fair enough, fair enough. Um, that's it. That's that's the first special. Spider Bundesliga podcast episode. Jonathan, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, our pleasure. Uh, and until next time, until next week, where we get into the nitty-gritty of the Spider Bundesliga, we hope you have a fantastic weekend.